remember when my sister was pregnant with her first child. She and her husband were living in Boston at the time, and they came home to Arkansas for Christmas. But they really came home to give us an annunciation. We had no idea they were preparing to have a child. But they had designed a game for us to play, and in the game, all the clues came together to let us know that in early June, they would have their first child. And the excitement just erupted as we all came to the realization of what they were telling us. Another annunciation happened about 12 years later when my youngest brother and his wife chose our family Thanksgiving prayer to tell us the good news. Now, I have nine nieces and nephews, but I won't subject you to every annunciation story. However, the point is that such news caused an eruption of joy in each and every case. That kind of eruption of emotion, whether it's joy, anticipation, surprise, that's what this first chapter contains. Of course, there are many parts to the story being unfolded, but it's joy that permeates every aspect of these enunciations and of both births. I've come to appreciate the fundamental truth that joy is the mark of those who know and love God. It's not necessarily about being happy. Happiness is more of a response to external happenings. Something good happens to us and we react, but joy is not dependent on events happening in a certain way or on outside circumstances. Joy is that inner disposition, that confidence that even in the worst of circumstances, God is present. The psalmist talks about being filled with abounding joy in the presence of God. Our conscious awareness of God's presence becomes a source of joy and produces a certain undeniable quality of life. And that joy becomes a sign of spiritual health. The author begins with a very brief prologue telling his audience that he is writing down the story so that they can be assured of its certainty. He's not so concerned about facts, but about telling the story in a way that testifies to God's plan of salvation and calls for a response of faith. He addresses himself to Theophilus, perhaps a historical character, perhaps Luke's patron, but perhaps not. The name itself means friend of God. And I'm asking us to view ourselves as friends of God for whom Luke is writing the story. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the recurring themes is God's faithfulness. That faithfulness is the cause of the psalmist's joy and the reason for Israel's great feasts of Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. God's faithfulness results in great joy among God's people who anticipate returning from exile. Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, known as 2nd Isaiah, is permeated with references to rejoicing because of God's faithfulness to the promises made to their ancestors. That same divine faithfulness produces the joy that we see in the Annunciation of both John and Jesus. Scripture scholar Fred Craddock points out in his commentary on Luke that in these stories, God is at work within the institutions, rituals, and practices of Israel. God chooses to do a new work, but to do it within the old. And so we're introduced right away to Zechariah and Elizabeth, both from priestly families, both righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. In Zechariah's turn for service at the temple, God intervenes in a most unexpected way. The angel of the Lord announces the good news of the birth of a son to Elizabeth, a woman described as barren and advanced in years. It says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. As we progress through this first chapter, we continue to find evidence of God's new action within the already existing framework of Judaism. Think about these pieces as parts of that progression. 
The angel chosen to announce the good news to both Zechariah and to Mary is Gabriel, one of the angels who turns up at very important times in Israel's history. Gabriel, for example, is the one who is referred to in the book of Daniel announcing the coming of the anointed one. And Luke stages these scenes as a completion of his messianic mission. Another example of God working in new ways within the existing religious life of Israel is the prayer or canticle of Mary. Her words when visiting Elizabeth are modeled on the prayer of Hannah from the first book of Samuel, and we'll explore that in more detail a little bit later. The imagery in both the Canticle of Mary and the Canticle of Zechariah are pulled from the experiences of Israel as they were shaped as a people as a result of the Exodus, and then shaped anew after the exile. This new action of God is what brings joy. The anticipation of God's promises being fulfilled has prepared Israel and has prepared these particular characters to recognize the new action of God in their personal lives and for the sake of all of Israel. Now, what can we make of Zechariah's becoming speechless? The story seems to imply that his skepticism is the cause of his condition. While many have assumed that Zechariah's lack of speech was a form of punishment, more recent scholarship helps us to see that his speechlessness really serves more as a sign of what is to happen than as a punishment for his reaction. After all, Zechariah wasn't the first to say, how shall I know this, and he wouldn't be the last. Abraham said the same thing when he questioned God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? And then Mary will similarly question Gabriel's announcement of her own pregnancy when she says, how can this be? Luke has framed the Annunciation to Zechariah in reference to Gabriel. In the book of Daniel, as in many biblical, biblical books that include prophecy or a divine call, the messenger of God often promises a sign. Zechariah's condition can serve as the sign that indeed God has made a promise and is acting in their midst. The sign that will be given to Mary is that her kinswoman, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. In both instances, the promise is for a time in the not-so-distant future, and the sign is for the present. In both instances, I see that the sign is meant to capture the imagination of those who receive the message and even of those who witness the events as they unfold. The sign of speechlessness in the elderly Zechariah and pregnancy in the elderly Elizabeth would have filled them and would have filled those around them with expectancy, an expectancy that will lead to joy. We are told that Elizabeth was barren and advanced in years, indicating that her time for childbearing had passed. Elizabeth would surely have been the object of whispering and gossip in her village. As we've come to understand, women were expected to bear sons and were blamed when sons didn't appear. And I imagine she was even the object of louder whispering when she conceived a child in her old age and stayed in her house for the first five months. But Luke's gospel says she was righteous in the eyes of God. In other words, her barrenness had nothing to do with her spiritual state, even if her neighbors thought otherwise. She is the only woman in the New Testament described in this way. She was in good company with other people that were called righteous, Joseph, John the Baptist, Simeon, Joseph of Arimathea, Cornelius, and Jesus, the righteous one. Elizabeth is a woman of the Torah, who found her value and delight in observing the commands of the Lord. Her very name, Elizabeth, means, my God is the one by whom I swear, or my God is my fortune. 
Some commentators point out that Elizabeth is the bridge from the Jewish scriptures to the Christian scriptures. She and her husband Zechariah usher in a new age in the birth of their son John, the one who had preached in the Judean desert and baptized in the Jordan River. John is the one to prepare the way for Jesus, but in a very special way, Elizabeth, his mother, kind of beat him to the punch. When she greeted the young Mary, who had come to her just barely pregnant with Jesus, Elizabeth cried out in a loud voice, Most blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We could say that Elizabeth proclaimed the kingdom and prepared the way for Jesus long before her son John, and it was a joyful proclamation. This was a woman who must have felt at home in silence. Perhaps in that silence she recognized that the Mighty One was doing great things for her just as the Mighty One had done great things in Israel's past bringing the people out of bondage and into the promised land, bringing back the captives from bondage in, in Babylon and then restoring them in Jerusalem. This same God is now continuing the work of salvation in her and she could listen to God begin to weave dreams for her and her family, dreams of a child who would be the prophet of the Most High, giving his people knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of their sins. These are the words of Zechariah's canticle, where he praises God for the tender mercy that brought them this miraculous, important child, who, as Scripture tells us, grew and became strong in spirit. God's gift to Elizabeth was a son. Elizabeth's gift to Israel was a listening heart that could hear God's plans and prepare her son to announce a new day of salvation. Elizabeth invites us to listen to the Lord to be constant in our desire to hear God's voice so that we will then be able to recognize God's work in our lives. Perhaps she helped young Mary to grow into this conviction that God was doing a wonderful thing for her, as God has always done for her people. But remember, Elizabeth wasn't just an older, wiser, quieter relative who would help Mary grow. She was a woman who knew the appropriate response to God's goodness, and that was joy. Her joy was the most natural response to Mary's news, and it must be our natural response to God's work in us and in others. If we truly understood what God was all about in our lives, we'd definitely be filled with awe, that's true, but we'd also be filled to the brim with joy that God would want for us what is the desire of our hearts. Let's look now at Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel in the first chapter of Luke. When Gabriel says to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you, she's greatly troubled by what he said. Who is she to find favor with the Lord? But if she was troubled by those words, imagine her dismay when the angel went on to say, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. Now this is a lot for a young Jewish girl to take in. But Gabriel proceeds and tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the Most High will overshadow her. Mary knows that in the history of her people, those who are overshadowed by the Most High are the prophets, those chosen by God to bring the word to God's people. And it's often a difficult word. The life of the prophet was not something to be envied. And perhaps this was swirling around in Mary's head, too, as she tried to understand how she would bear a child. Mary finally responds in what have become familiar words to us, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. 
She is aware of who she is in relation to God and in relation to humanity. She's a handmaid, a servant whose service is needed. And then we hear Mary say, may it be done to me according to your word. The famous fiat of Mary has come to sound almost passively submissive, but there's nothing passive about her response. This is not something she's resigned to, but something she will actively participate in, and she's overjoyed to be a part of it, even if it defies logic and upsets the usual order of things. Like Mary, we have to be willing to push aside our need for logic when God wants to make room in us for the magnificent gift of love that is our share in the kingdom. Mary's Magnificat in Luke's Gospel asks us to believe that the impossible is possible. These are revolutionary words from one who is both aware of being selected by God and in touch with her own lowliness. Megan McKenna has identified three turnings, if you will, in Mary's canticle, and each of the turnings will be initiated by her son. The first turning or revolution is a turning of the person, a turning of the heart. Through her son Jesus, Mary proclaims that her life has been turned upside down. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, she says, for God has looked upon this handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on will all ages call me blessed. These are the words of one who recognizes her own poverty as a source of joy and her own cooperation with God as a source of blessing, not just for herself, but for all ages to come. Her words remind us that God holds blessings for each of us, blessings that we can reach and touch once we touch our own lowliness. The second turning or revolution is the reversal of power. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. Things are not as they seem. Those who hold places of power have no power outside of discipleship. The lowly are God's special pride and joy, and Mary knows this firsthand. She knows what it means to give herself over to a new vision of reality. In this new reality, power belongs to God, and God is a friend of the poor. Education, social or economic status, this means nothing in terms of who holds the real power. Genuine power creates an atmosphere where people can be truly human, respected and dignified, rather than manipulated. The third turning is all about the economic order of things. The hungry he has filled with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. In a world where the top 5% of the population consumes anywhere from 80 to 90% of its goods, we have to wonder what Mary's song says to us. Do we recognize our emptiness? Or are our lives so cluttered we can't find that empty space within or that God wants to fill for us? And it's not just about spiritual emptiness. It's about the emptiness of our purses and wallets, the emptiness of our stomachs. If we have never had these experiences, how will we recognize our solidarity with the physically poor, our obligation to love in tangible ways? Mary's canticle is about God's work in the world, and it foreshadows the work of Jesus in the world on behalf of the poor and marginalized. When Jesus began his public ministry about 30 years later, he was in his hometown synagogue, and he stood to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Listen to these words that inaugurated his ministry, and see if you don't think like mother, like son. And he read the following, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind 
to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. The words of Isaiah on the lips of an adult Jesus have a way of echoing. They bring us back to the infancy narrative where Elizabeth acknowledges the Lord even before he is born. Blessed is the fruit of the, your womb, she says. They bring us back to the prayer of Zechariah where he proclaims that his son John will be prophet of the Most High and one who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. They bring us back to the words of Mary most poignantly as she proclaims the God who lifts up the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. Luke is masterfully building anticipation in this first chapter. He wants us, the listeners, to learn what it means to wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to see that God has not abandoned the people of the covenant, but he also wants us to see that God cannot be limited by the way things have always been. God can and will do something new and continues to do so in every generation. Mm-hmm.